This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Today I'd like to talk about the relationship between devotion, compassion for other people, and compassion for yourself. It seems to me there's a very important and interesting interrelationship between these qualities that I have not really examined much before in my life. Often when I'm talking, I'm talking from a a Buddhist point of view, particularly a Tibetan Buddhist overlay on here's the way the spiritual path works. And in Tibetan Buddhism, and this is something that I've repeated again and again, that the way we work with the heart is first devotion because devotion is the easiest way to open the heart because devotion is loving that which is lovable. You're loving the Dharma, you're loving God, you're loving your guru, you're loving the divine mother, whatever it is that that is that quality, that being that you trust that which doesn't change your own true nature. So in Tibetan Buddhism, First, we work with devotion and then compassion. And compassion is clearly a much more difficult way to open the heart because we're opening our heart to suffering. But the more I began to think about it, I remember my time, particularly in the beginning with Maharaji. And here I was with this being who was the embodiment of love. And I had a hard time feeling devotional because I was so neurotic. I didn't have compassion for myself. This relationship between devotion and compassion for self is something that goes back and forth. They feed each other in a certain way. And even beyond that, in Tibetan Buddhism, compassion for self is rarely talked about because it's assumed in Eastern practices that you love yourself, you have compassion for yourself before you begin this big project of disidentifying with who you think you are and beginning to identify with who you really are. Many people have come to me and said, I have, I have a much easier time having compassion for other people than I do having compassion for myself. And I've said, well, it's really the same thing. When your heart is open, compassion is not an emotion. It's, easy, it's just as easy to have compassion for everybody else as yourself. But the more I think about it, 
I think I was a little wrong there, that, that compassion for self interacts with a lot of our early childhood stuff in a way that we don't feel worthy of having that compassion for ourselves, just in the way I didn't feel worthy of having Maharaji love me. So let's explore then this relationship between compassion for other people, compassion for yourself, and devotion. All three of these obviously are qualities of the heart. And in this healing paradigm that we've been exploring together, the heart qualities, the opening the heart, opening the heart chakra is dependent on an embodied mindfulness, being grounded and centered, trusting that you can be vulnerable. When I was there with Maharaji or even afterwards, or even today, I was, even as I was thinking about this talk, I was asking myself, isn't my devotion still a little bit shaky? I mean, a lot of times I trust Maharaji. I trust that he's taking care of the Living Dying Project. I do my best, but the money that comes will come and the clients that come will come, which reminds me that I'm supposed to mention in the announcements, which I forgot, that we've got a lot of great volunteers. We need more clients. So if you know somebody who could use our services as a client, please, please contact our email or phone numbers that are right there on the website. My devotion, even 50 years after I've been with Maharaji, I was there obviously before he died. So it's been more than 50 years since I was there in India with him. And still with all of the chanting, all of the mantra, all of the talking to him in, in my heart, all of that, there are still things that happen in my life where I say, What's going on here that I don't trust that it's all God unfolding, it's all the, all the Dharma unfolding. Devotion is a very appealing notion. Loving God, loving true nature, loving self with a capital S, loving the Dharma, devotion to awareness in some way is the secret sauce. Awareness with a small A, awareness with a capital A. Do I really believe in God when I'm caught in my neuroses? Can I have enough devotion to awareness that I'm, I'm cutting through those places where I, I'm not feeling devotion? This wonderful teacher, one of my teachers long ago, Jean Klein, said, feel the yearning, but don't formulate it. But so often we're formulating, we're thinking about devotion, we're thinking about what we want, what we need, what our relationship with God should be. Letting go of self, if we really think about devotion, it's letting go of attachment to self and becoming attached to God. In this annihilation of the false self, as long as we have all this psychological stuff where we don't feel compassion for ourselves, it's going to be very, very challenging. It's going to be scary. So that what I'm beginning to come to in my thinking about this this last week is that there's this back and forth, very intimate interplay between this opening in devotion and 
bumping into places where the false self doesn't want to surrender, having compassion for that, going back into devotion, and these things going back and forth, back and forth. I've been approaching them as kind of two separate things where here, well, let's do a compassion practice for myself or for somebody else. Here, let me, let me do a devotional practice. What I'm seeing is that they really have to be happening at the same time, like back and forth, back and forth. And I think there's a real tendency that when we're doing devotional practice, there's self-judgment that I'm not loving my guru enough. When I'm chanting and my mind is wandering, I'm not a very good devotee. And I'm not bringing a lot of self-compassion into that particular part of my practice. So that integrating the psychological and the devotional is very important for most Westerners. One of my teachers said, without devotion, you're never going to feel any intimacy between yourself and the teaching or the lineage masters. You're never going to feel any intimacy without devotion. But are we ready to bear this intimacy? Intimacy with the teaching, intimacy with the master, in a way means letting go of identifying with the self. So devotion is focusing on the true self and is the annihilating of the false self. When the Dalai Lama came to the West on his third visit to America, he said, now I'm beginning to understand, and it makes me very sad, you Americans don't like yourselves. And I remember another time I was at a Tibetan empowerment, an all-day practice, and the Lama said, okay, the first thing we're going to do in this practice is open our hearts. So everybody think about your mother. And then he said, oh, wait a minute. This is America. Thinking about your mother doesn't mean your heart is going to open. And he laughed. Okay. It's where he comes from. You think about your mother and your heart opens up. Where, where we come from, for some people that's true. For some people it's kind of ambivalent. For some people not so much at all. There's this push-pull of intimacy that really is the heart of devotion. And without compassion for self, we're going to get sidetracked again and again, and particularly into self-judgment. Beyond that, people would ask Maharaji, what's the best form to worship God? What should I have devotion to? And he said, every form. And he, he didn't just mean all the pictures on your puja table. He meant you and me and all the people in this room and Donald Trump and Joe Biden, devotion to all of this, right? And that's a very difficult thing to do. So it's not only compassion for ourselves, but it's compassion and devotion to all these other beings, right? It's, it's easy to have maybe compassion and devotion for Maharaji, after we're doing the work that I've just been talking about, but can we really have some heartfelt relationship with all these other beings in the world? Devotion goes through various stages. In the beginning stage, we're feeling this yearning, we're working with not grasping, we're working with examining why we feel and why we don't feel what we're not feeling. 
learning to trust the light and to trust the pain, asking what it is that we actually have faith in. Maybe we're not feeling deep connection yet, but we're trying to receive, we're trying to feel that deeper devotion. And that devotion is what brings energy to practice, which really, really gets us to do the work of looking at what's difficult to putting our butt on the cushion to again and again, diving into practice. When we get to heart stage devotion, but finally the heart is opening, we're, we're in this sense of connection. Now there's the sense of devotion to the relative deity, to my idea of Maharaji or my idea of Christ or the mother. And here is where we really need self-compassion, where we really need to have a sense of mercy for the parts of ourselves that's having a hard time with devotion. Because when we finally get to tantric devotion, we've gone from relative devotion to compassion to tantric devotion. In tantric devotion, we see that all of it is the guru. It's the absolute deity. It's not just some idea of it. It's not something that comes and goes. So there's this very interesting evolution of devotion, relative devotion to compassion, to absolute devotion. And in absolute devotion, we can be receiving grace in every moment. We can see that it's all the deity. Maharaji would say things like, the only thing that's important is how much you love God. He would say things like, I'm always in communion with you. In the beginning stages of practice, I would hear those things and I would feel guilty because I wasn't feeling them, except occasionally. And then I'd feel it more and more. But as practice deepens and I felt it uh, in a more ongoing way, then there's, there's the absolute deity, that it's not about this notion of Maharaji, but there's this sense of presence itself. Short poem from Hafiz. Know the nature of your beloved. In her loving eyes, your every thought, every word and movement is always, always beautiful. Once we really get that, devotion will have a very different quality. Now, maybe you're somebody who's not into gurus. Maybe you're somebody who's not into deities. We could have the same relationship with Buddha Dharma Sangha. How much do we really believe the Four Noble Truths? How much do we have devotion to the Dharma? I mean, if we really believe that suffering is caused by grasping, let go of grasping, no more suffering, and there is a way to do that, then that is true devotion. It's easier maybe to talk about this stuff in terms of God and guru. It can all be translated into a totally atheistic or agnostic languaging. In Buddhism, there are what are known as the four heavenly abodes of the four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. Each one of these has a far enemy and a near enemy. We've talked about this in the past. I'm going to talk about part of it briefly right now again. 
the near enemy of love is attachment. The near enemy is something that looks like it, but it's actually a problem. The far enemy is the obvious thing. The far enemy of love is hatred, but the near enemy of love is attachment. It looks like love, it smells like love, but it causes suffering. And very often our love, which we can extend here to our devotion, is a mixture of true love and attachment. So like in the beginning, when I was with Maharaji, there was a lot of attachment. I am the poor, humble devotee. You're the great guru. Please pay attention to me. I know I don't deserve it, right? You're out there. I'm down here. There was a lot of attachment. I need you. I need you. When we think about romantic love, there is often a lot of attachment mixed in with the true love you're feeling for this other human being. Can we begin to bring self-compassion to the attachment that's mixed in with our love? The far enemy of compassion, on the other hand, is cruelty, but the near enemy of compassion is pity. We feel separate from the part of us, us or the other person that we're trying to feel compassion for. And I felt pity for that part of myself. I felt pity for my friends who were struggling to feel devotion for Maharaji or devotion for God. Once again, beginning to see very clearly the difference between compassion and pity, between love, devotion, and attachment. Let's talk then a little bit more clearly about what compassion is and isn't, and particularly self-compassion. Compassion is not an emotion. And that is the tricky point here. A lot of people think compassion is, is being nice, it's being kind. And compassion can be wrathful. Compassion can be fierce. Compassion can be strong. Compassion is any feeling or action that comes out of a wide open heart. When uh, Quan Duc, the Vietnamese monk, immolated, burned himself to death, that was an act of compassion, supposedly. I mean, that's what he was saying it was. When Christ threw money changes out of the temple, that was an act of compassion. Can we begin to trust actions coming completely out of an open heart? One of the qualities of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. And that could be extended to equalizing and switching the part of you that's judging another part of yourself. If I think that I'm better than you or worse than you or better or worse than some part of myself, then there isn't compassion in that moment. So that when we turn on the news and look at political figures or entertainment figures or victims of wildfires on Maui or wars in the Ukraine, are we feeling compassion? Are we feeling pity? Are we feeling attachment? We need to be able, in order to cultivate compassion, we need to be able to examine our tendency to be bothered, to drive all blames into one. Instead of saying, I'm bothered because of what's going on out there, 
take responsibility that I'm getting off center. My heart is closed right now. All spiritual practice is about letting go of self-clinging, self-centeredness. And that's really the core of what it is that we're talking about here today. Devotion is completely put off the rails by being self-centered. And finally, let's examine what self-compassion is about. As a self-forgiveness practice, self-compassion practice, why don't we do this together briefly? Just for a few moments, very brief practice. Put both of your hands on your heart. Pause and feel the warmth of your hands on your chest. And just breathe in and out of your heart. And then, either out loud or silently to yourself, say the following phrases. The first one is, this is a moment of suffering. Everyone suffers. May I accept myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. May I give myself the compassion I need. So firstly, we're bringing mindfulness to the fact that just being in a human body, there is unsatisfactoriness. I watched my friend Peter. I visited him a month ago and then a week ago. And it was remarkable to me how much he had changed in those three weeks. How much more centered, how much more accepting, how much more present he was as he was so much closer to leaving his body. The second phrase, suffering is part of life, reminds you that imperfection is part of the shared human experience. The third phrase may be kind to myself in this moment. Helps bring a sense of caring concern to your present moment experience. And then finally, may I give myself the compassion I need. Firmly sets our intention for self-compassion. Sometimes it's, it's hard to accept that we deserve compassion, the, the superego, the, the self-judging quality is so ingrained. It's so hard not to believe that voice that says, you're inadequate, you need to practice to get better. It's not the path to enlightenment that we're on. It's the path of enlightenment. There's nowhere to get. There's not something to accomplish. There's not something to fix. Being motivated to bring self-compassion to the place that sidetracks our devotion. And as devotion deepens, realize that it's not just devotion to those pictures on the altar, but it's God in all those forms. The ones that we meet every day when we look in the mirror, when we look around the, the dining table, when we look at the computer screen with the news, 
I really encourage the practice of Tonglen for yourself. I think most of you know the practice of Tonglen. If you don't, it's explained in great detail on our website, T-O-N-G-L-E-N. And one of the most healing practices I know is to admit the place where you're most caught and do loving kindness, compassion practice, Tonglen practice for the place in yourself. If you're traumatized, if you have something that you're in, in therapy for that's very difficult to bear, maybe you don't want to go to the most difficult place. But find the place that seems ready to be worked with, ready to be healed, that's presenting itself in your life right now. And can you sit down with that part of yourself and feel compassion for her, for him, loving kindness? And do the practice on a regular basis of opening with compassion to that part of yourself. And to the extent we do that, devotion will begin to flow. And devotion will begin to deepen and widen into the ways that we've just been talking about. I'd like to have today be more conversational than usual. I'd like to hear from you people. <laughs> You people, it didn't sound quite right. From us. <laughs> uh, how self-compassion, self-judgment, devotion, compassion are interplaying in your life. Any remarks, questions, comments, I would love to hear. Uh, when I can find myself in this place of devotion, compassion, self-compassion, it's... it's um, um, as you talk about maybe devotion leads to uh, self-compassion or to compassion, to self-compassion, it seems to be a circle that eventually is all kind of one. Can't have one without the other. Um, when I'm in that place, I have two questions. You mentioned um, I need you, the phrase being attachment. Um, when I am in that place of yearning um, and what I would call at some point Prayer. I don't use the word I need you, but there's that longing. And I wonder if I need you can be also a prayer. Sure. It's not a phrase I use. I'm not sure about that. But um, um, my other question is, um, and, and you mentioned also, I mean, we have childhood stuff and... Um, uh, almost for me a default. Um, what's the word I want? Uh, brain pattern um, that I can see clearly. I, I wonder if and, and kind of what I'm working with is is tr moving into self compassion. Um, I can feel healing and non-attachment but does it change those patterns or were those patterns always potentially be there in a more healing sense yeah that's a great question and i'm not sure i know the answer to that I, the f famous line by ramdas where he says if you're son of a bitch and you get enlightened you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch so i've been meditating for over 50 years and my neuroses have greatly calmed down. 
But at the same time, I'm the basic personality structure that Dale was shortly after he was born or, you know, like from five years old, right? I mean, there's that five-year-old and there's me and there's a pretty straight line between the two of them. It's just that I'm much, much less identified so that the difference is like a long time ago, if I'd get angry, I'd get really angry and I'd get lost in that and there'd be all the cortisol and the cortisol and the cortisol. Now I still have that personality where I get angry but I notice it and it's come and gone and the whole thing takes five seconds or 20 seconds or whatever it takes, right? So it's, it's got the same patterns, but I'm not lost in them. Right. And it doesn't cause nearly the amount of suffering that it used to in the past. If my mother was still alive, she said, oh, there's Dale, right? I remember once when I was in graduate school, I was at Stanford and we had this, this, anti-Vietnam War rallies going on. And there was a, a photograph on the cover of the weekly newspaper of this march going on. And I was uh, taking a picture of it. So my, my back was to the, the photograph. And my mother saw it. And just by the way I was standing, she could tell that it was me. There was no identifying anything other than my posture, right? She knew that that 25-year-old, was that was her little Dale, right? If she were around, she could still identify me from the back, right? From 100 yards away, probably. But there's much less suffering. So, I mean, the point is not what the emotion is, but how we're relating to it, how we're caught in it, how we're letting it just flow instead of being caught in it. There's this lovely story about that Sri Aurobindo, the great Indian sage, told. He said, I was walking down the road and on the path to freedom and God knocked me over and I fell in this mud puddle. And I got up and I shook my fist and said, why did you do that? Look, I got all dirty. I'm trying to get to you. Why are you doing that? And I walked down the path further and... God knocked me over again. And this time I got up and I was really upset, but I didn't shake my fist. And then the third time he, she knocked me over and I just got up and kept walking. The question is, how long are you going to complain about it? <laughs> and how quick are you going to get back just walking down the path? Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ramdev? Yes, sir. Earlier in the beginning of the meeting, you use a number of self-healing phrases. People are asking, we can repeat what those were, or self-care phrases. Right. So that's a basic self-compassion practice. Buddhists like to have these slogans. I don't really use them too much, but I, I, I use the feeling behind them. There's a woman named Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F. She's really been promoting self-compassion a lot. She was on one of my podcasts maybe about a year ago or a little bit longer. And these are phrases that you can say to yourself whenever you feel you need some self-compassion. The first one is, this is a moment of suffering. Just identifying it. Bringing mindfulness to the fact you're in pain. Uh, you could change the wording that's comfortable for you. I'm having a really hard time right now. 
this hurts or anything describes the, the fact that you're suffering uh, right now and how you're experiencing it. The second phrase is everyone suffers. You're, we're taking it beyond the personal. It's not woe is me, but this is the human condition that being in a body until you're enlightened, there's going to be suffering. Suffering is a part of life. Imperfection is part of the shared human experience. You could change the wording to something like everyone feels this way sometimes. This is part of being human, something like that. The third one is, may I accept myself in this moment? It's basically saying, may I be kind to myself in this moment? Other possible wordings, may I love and support myself right now? May I accept myself as I am? Once again, there's nothing magic about the, the phrase that I repeated the first time, but there is a progression here. And the fourth one is that is then, may I give myself the compassion I need? You could say, may I remember that I'm worthy of compassion. May I give myself the same compassion that I would give to a good friend. So that basically self-compassion is treating yourself the same way you treat your best friend, even though you know how neurotic you are. How many people here in this room have looked at a dear friend or a child or even an animal and be so moved with love that you've wept? How many, how many people have experienced that? Almost everybody seems to be putting up their head. How many people have looked in a mirror and be so moved by what you saw with love that you, that you wept? There's a couple people. <laughs> I'm not counting, but two, three. Okay, all women for some reason. <laughs> Who knows what that means? Is Jim, is that your hand up? Um, thank you, Dale. So good to be with you and with everybody. And uh, here's my question. I seem to be really terrible at why I think he's called empathy. So I just will with somebody, whether they're suffering or not, right? Um, and, but then, and a lot of times I'll do stuff that is just not empathetic at all. It's like, you know, tone deaf. And when I hurt the person, when there is suffering, and I do seem to be able to rise to the occasion to be compassionate once I've caused harm. Right. And, and I'll listen and stuff much better. But man. Yeah. The empathy part still um, eludes me. So I don't know if you could say anything about that practice. That's a very good question. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. I know Jim well enough to know that he's a teacher of mindfulness meditation. Was I actually re retired from that. Not, not just a substitute occasional teaching. A retired, a retired meditation teacher, probably, probably the best kind. You know, I'm a recovering mathematician, so I, I do have some, some empathy for your lack of empathy. My sense of what happens to me, and I know you well enough, I think this might be kind of true for you, is 
not a lack of heart, but a lack of mindfulness. That you're, you're a very good meditator, but then when you're in some close, intimate relationship with another human being, something about that is threatening enough that mindfulness sort of disintegrates and one goes into the mind and going into the mind cuts off the empathy, right? So it's not trying to open your heart more. It's getting back into your body. Can I be grounded and centered when somebody around me is suffering or somebody around me is needing connectedness right now? These are developmental stages. And if in fact you could just take a couple breaths into your heart, then that could be a lovely thing. But for me, often it takes going back a step or two. Uh, I developed this thing I call the two breath meditation. And I'd like to all of us do it together. It's the whole spiritual path in, in two breaths. The first breath is up, down. The second breath is in, out. And what I mean by that is on the first inhalation, you just extend your spine. You, you just feel motivated. You get there. And on the first out breath, you drop down into your lower belly, into the hara. On the second in breath, you breathe into your heart, compassion, devotion, whatever. And on the second out breath, you breathe out infinitely in all directions. So it's like motivation, centering, compassion, spaciousness. And after doing it for a while, you can forget about the first breath. We'll just assume that you're motivated and centered enough and just practice breathing into the heart and breathing out in the spaciousness. And can you be with somebody and trust that spaciousness? But you only get to that after you've done the first breath enough that you really feel motivated and centered enough to bear, to bear the deep vulnerability of being in the heart. Why don't we try this together? And uh, sometimes when I sit down to meditate and my mind is like wandering around and stuff, I just do the two breath meditation for a couple of minutes and boom, it just really brings me back to being present in a, in a very direct way. And I found it works in relationship with another person. Okay, first breath, you straighten your spine. You imagine maybe that God is pulling the top of your head up your motivated. And then the first out breath, you drop down into your lower belly, out breath, horror breath, full yet relaxed lower belly. Second in breath, you breathe into your heart, feeling a sense of love, of, of kindness, of compassion, devotion, breathing into your heart as if there were nostrils in the center of your chest. Second out breath, Letting go, surrendering into spaciousness in all directions. You might notice that it's easier to feel in front than behind or above than below, right than left, whatever, without judging. And just do that a few times on your own. Up, down, in, out. And now imagine sitting right in front of you, a friend of yours who's having a relatively hard time right now. Can you feel empathy for them? Can you be motivated, centered, open-hearted, and surrendered 
well, you're in relationship to someone who has some need of empathy right now. And then coming back into the room, and let's see if our friend Jim has any comments. First of all, just uh, having to pay attention to the direction is quite helpful because that kept me present. <laughs> um, where's this drifting away? But I, what I took away from what you've offered, Dale, for me is just really to just stay more in my body, more in my heart. Well, thank you, Gail. Okay. Well, so I tend to overshare and overthink things. Uh, I appreciate you being so funny and real. So thank you for making me laugh. What I'm wondering is, so for myself, when I talk about compassion, I'm going through some medical stuff right now. I was like hit by a white pickup truck recently walking my dog and he rode over my legs. Um, so I'm dealing with like a broken ankle and whatnot. And I find myself getting angry and impatient with like family members or my roommate. And I'm like, oh, they're being a bitch right now or they're being an asshole. And then I'm like, you're being mean. You're not like empathizing with their situation. So how do you balance like being not compassionate to yourself, but also seeing what's really going on? Like when you're like, well, you kind of feel like that person's an asshole. Like how do you balance it? Yeah. Maharaj, you said the worst punishment you can give anybody is to put them out of your heart. I mean, I've got a whole long story that I'm not going to tell, but I was in another restaurant and somebody got mad at somebody else. Somebody got mad at one of the wait staff and the wait staff person ran into the kitchen crying and the other guy ran out of the, I mean, stomped out of the restaurant and somebody came out of the kitchen and started dealing with me who was next in line. And he said, well, that guy didn't know was that her father died just a few days ago. So that maybe that guy who was being kind of rude, maybe he had a tragedy in his life. Who knows? So is it possible to see somebody acting from a closed heart, but not judge them? To call them an asshole and keep your heart open, that's the trick. Really, my attempt is to try to not to close anybody out of my heart. I mean, even, even Donald Trump. Uh, if everybody loved him, then maybe he wouldn't be such an asshole. What was your question? You're having a hard time. You've had the accident. People are... Like having a balance of being like... Like you just phrased it so well. Being able to see someone has a closed heart right now and not like grasping onto me wanting to open their heart or because I tend to do that. But my thing is how to like balance having compassion for yourself and your situation and then also still having compassion for the other person that might be acting like an asshole. Right. I feel like you answered it, though. You, you yeah. gained a lot of data. I'd just like to say one more thing, and that is that I think it really largely boils down to being able to love the part of you that other people would see as an asshole. That as long as you're judging yourself, that's going to be projected out onto all these other people too. My friend Peter, who died, his wife told me that she has a nickname for me. And the nickname she came up with was Ram Bulldozer. 
just in the way that Jim was talking about being a little tone deaf sometimes. I'm a firm believer in the truth, and sometimes I don't express it with enough nuance or empathy, possibly. I'm just trying to learn how to be kinder to myself moment to moment, to take care of myself. Ramdas, before he had his stroke, he ate junk food. He never exercised. He didn't take care of himself at all. He, he had a very strong constitution like I do, and he just, he didn't care about his body. He didn't care about taking care of himself. Self-compassion, to believe, to trust that we deserve self-compassion moment to moment, for many of us is the work of a lifetime. Self-compassion, self-forgiveness, very similar qualities. You can just go around saying, Kelso, I forgive you. Kelso, I forgive you. Dale, I forgive you. Jim, I forgive you. And just imagine what it would be like if you meant it. What it, what it would feel like if you actually forgave yourself. So, thank you, Kelso. I hope your ankle and your legs heal up. Also, I keep being told, and I forget to mention, that the Living Dying Project largely exists on donations. And if you would like to donate, it would be gratefully accepted. And if you can't or won't, we still love you just as much. Enjoy the rest of the summer. For those of you who love Maharaji, his 50th anniversary of leaving his body is the full moon of this month. It's being celebrated on the 23rd and 24th in Taos. He has been a great blessing in my life, obviously. I thank him. I thank all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for allowing me to do what I do here. And I wish you all the best. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely? unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.